news that the Battler bus that Pauline Hansen launched with a bottle of $7 champagne earlier this week has broken down. Hopefully they're using something other than Yellow Glen champagne uh, to power that. Is it on? Look, I'm going to uh, shirt front, Mr Putin. I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. I will not. No, wait, it, it is on? Uh, you bet you are. Uh, you bet I am. I don't like it. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Well, may we say God save the Queen. Because nothing will save the Governor General. Hello and welcome to episode 30 of BuzzFeed Australia's political podcast, Is It On? We're recording this on the morning of Friday the 10th of November. My name is Alice Workman and I am here in Parliament House in Canberra and joining me from Sydney is Lane Sainty. Lane, hello. Alice, hello. How are you this morning? Oh, just so sad to hear that uh, Pauline Hanson's battler bus has broken down. <laughs> I mean, it's literally battling. It is. We're in week two. We've got two weeks to go. Yeah. It's battling. It's taken its name a little too seriously, I think, the, the poor literally. old battler bus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Also, I love the fact that they um, christened it with a, uh, a $7 bottle of champagne. <laughs> yes, the Yellow Glen. What a time. I absolutely love that. Yellow Glen. Mm -hmm. We should all drink some Yellow Glen this weekend. So, Alice, what's on the show this week? Well, this week I spoke with Greens leader Richard Di Natale. Um, Now, he's predicting that the Turnbull government won't survive Christmas and that Australia will have a snap election in the next few months and Bill Shorten will become Prime Minister. That is a huge call. Very big call from RDM there. Oh, huge call. But we've got so much to get through. Let's just kick on with the Mm -hmm. episode. And number one is it is officially a citizenship crisis standoff. Now, the PM may be at APEC in Vietnam at the moment, but there is no sign that issues around citizenship are going to go away anytime soon. We've now got question marks over Rebecca Sharkey, John Alexander, Jackie Lampy, Jason Falinski, Susan Lamb, Justin Key, Josh Wilson, Alex Hawke, Julia Banks, Pauline Hanson, Emma Hussar, and on and on and on and on and on and on it goes. And now, Lane, just today, the replacement for former Nationals Deputy and New South Wales Senator Fiona Nash has a question mark over her eligibility. But it's not about citizenship. It is about about the fact that after she lost the last election, I'm talking about Holly Hughes here, Mm -hmm. after she lost the, the last election, she was appointed to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal by Attorney General George Brandis in one of those uh, jobs for the Liberal boys kind of move. Um, so she, so after the election, she was appointed to the AAT. The AAT is a government body and you can't be working for the government when you nominate for parliament. So the High Court are going to have to hold an inquiry into her next week. Ugh. But the other three senators are all Gucci and they're in Senate school today and they're going to be sworn in first thing on Monday morning. But mm-hmm. Lane, I am just so fed up with all of this whole citizenship drama and I have no time. No time for these sob stories. So this week, uh-huh. the pe- the three biggest people were John Alexander, yep, Liberal MP John Alexander, mm-hmm. Nick Xenophon teams Rebecca Sharkey, yep. and Tasmanian Labor MP Justine Kate. Now, Rebecca Sharkey is blaming the UK Home Office for taking a month to send back her renunciation forms. So the deadline is June 9. That was the day that everyone needed to have their paperwork done in order to nominate themselves to run for parliament, right? Yep. She got her uh, renunciation forms back after the nomination date, but before the actual election. But the actual Sharky story here is pretty fascinating because, well, I have no sympathy for her. Um, <laughs> just, the just PM to called her. <laughs> yeah, the PM called her on Thursday morning around eleven o'clock or so and listened to her story and then told her she had to refer herself. And then within the next few hours, before she'd even had time to come up with a press release with her staff and, and, and announce it, someone told the media and there was a story up on the Tizer website. So they weren't even ready when, when the story was leaked out to, to give comment to anyone. Yeah. Um, I reckon he's, act, he's absolutely thrown her to the wolves here because how come she is being told she has to refer herself, yeah. but the Liberals aren't going to refer John Alexander, mm. who is probably a Brit lane. <laughs> He's probably a Brit, right? <laughs> and the probably. other person in this uh, in the spotlight this week, <laughs> <laughs> yes. And the other person in the spotlight this week is Labor's Justine Key from Tasmania. Now she got her British citizenship renunciation paper, um, renunciation notice after the election. So it was after she'd already been elected to Parliament. So she was a Brit when she was elected, uh, and then she gave this interview to the Tasmanian Mercury. Quote. The emotional member for Braddon began tearing up when explaining why it took three months to renounce her British connection. I delayed it. 
It's one of those things with the citizenship I knew I could never get it back. If I didn't get elected, I can't get my citizenship back. And for me, it was a very personal thing. But Lane, seriously, under the reading of the High Court's decision last month, if you received your announcement after nomination, you are ineligible to remain in Parliament. I have no sympathy for these people. As my friends say, rules are rules. Lane, rules are rules. Uh-huh. None of these people followed the rules and now they're all getting caught and they're all, oh, it wasn't my fault. Yes, it was. Own up. <laughs> Move on. Deal with it. Yes. Anyway, Alice, what, what is Malcolm Turnbull going to do about all of this? Well, I tell you what he's not going to do, Lane, and that is an audit. <laughs> he is not doing an audit. This is not an audit. <laughs> he wants to do a non-audit. Yeah. The process that he suggested is that politicians will have to submit the date and location of their births and their parents' births and declarations about any citizenship they've held or their, their parents have held. They'll have to upload it to the interest disclosure um, log like they do with their finances and houses, but... All they have to say is, to the best of my knowledge, I think X, Y, Z. So if they're found to have provided false statements, they won't face any punishments. It's just like when they fail to declare houses. Nothing happens. They just say, oh, whoops, I got this other house that I didn't mention. Yeah. The PM had a meeting with Labor because Labor said that maybe they were going to come to the table on this. But surprise, surprise, they had a two-hour meeting and they couldn't agree on anything. <laughs> the Turnbull quote is actually quite funny. It's so Turnbull. I sat there with my iPad for two hours with him and I could not get him to specify what changes he wanted. <laughs> and well, of course not. Yeah, and of course they're, this is... They're using this as like a wedging tool. Of course they're not going to come to the table with you and make it easy for yeah, you. Yeah, and after oh this God. meeting, um, that was when they both announced a press conference at the same time in the same location. <laughs> <laughs> So Labor's biggest problem is that they think that the 21-day window that the government have, have suggested is too long a period because it could roll this all into next year. But the PM has kind of said, well, maybe we'll have an extra sitting week so we can have this all sorted out by Christmas. Shorten wants it solved by December 1. He, he thinks the politicians should already have their documents in order. And honestly, if you're a politician and you haven't double-checked and you haven't even thought about it, then, then you, don't, you don't deserve to be here, in my opinion. You do not deserve to be here. But it's also important to note that the High Court doesn't sit from the 15th of December through until February. So if there are any referrals that have to be made and any subsequent by-elections, they won't be at the earliest till March. And I'm sure that everyone is just so frustrated with all of the squabblings over little things that are happening. Here's Christopher Pine on the Today Show. Christopher, are you going to refer Labor MPs with citizenship issues to the High Court? Simple, yes or no? Uh, well, yes, if they have citizenship issues, we will. You going ahead with that now? I just said, if we have evidence that there are Labor MPs with clouds over their citizenship, uh, I don't care if Labor wants to cooperate or not. Bill Shorten is trying to blow up the Parliament. We're trying to solve the issue that the High Court has created for us. If, if Bill Shorten thinks you can carve out Labor MPs from the same rules that apply to everybody else in the Parliament, here's another thing coming. Now, there's a precedent normally that um, High Court referrals are made by an MP's own party. So you you kind of own it and re you refer yourself. And that's what happened with the Citizenship 7. But, but it looks like because Labor are really digging their heels in, that the Libs might chuck that precedent out the window. Now, in probably one of the boldest moves this week, South Australian Senator Cory Bernardi said he thinks we should prorogue Parliament. Do you know what proroguing means, Lane? Uh, I do, because I heard about it earlier this week on Radio National. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it means the Parliament uh, would discontinue, so it wouldn't sit until this whole citizenship uh, thing is sorted out. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I have a secret suspicion that Cory Bernardi might have some ulterior motives here about the postal survey legislation. No, but, uh, no way. <laughs> Heaven forbid. Yes. Now, Greens leader Richard Di Natale has threatened to boycott any controversial government legislation until the citizenship saga is resolved by Parliament. A bit later, he'll explain the Greens' proposal for an independent audit, which is pretty interesting. But, Lane, next week we've got a Senate-only sitting week. Uh, and, and you know, Stephen Parry's quit, so there's no Senate president. Uh, the first thing the Senate will do on Monday morning is swear in the three new senators, because there's a question mark over Holly Hughes, yep. and vote in a new Senate president. The contenders are Special Minister of State Scott Ryan. Now, you're probably thinking, why would a minister want to be the Senate president? Well, it is technically a pay rise, and you get a really sweet office and a huge catering budget and your own courtyard. Yeah. 
Uh, and you still get to, unlike, it's very different to the House of Reps, and I don't think people understand this. If you're Senate president, you can still vote and you can still um, make speeches on legislation and stuff. Hmm. So, and, and, you know, of course, and, no one, and you're, you're unaccountable because no one knows who you are. So I think that, you know, <laughs> that's probably why Scott Ryan's doing it. Yeah. Um, the other, so it's Scott Ryan, Liberal backbenchers, David Fawcett and Dean Smith, mm-hmm. who we've had on the podcast before. Also, Ian McDonald has put his hands up. And the Greens are running Peter Wish Wilson as the absolutely won't get elected candidate, but they're doing it anyway. So good on them for having a go. <laughs> yes, um, good, good on Scott them. Ryan is the hot money for the win. Now, Lane, what is number two? Number two is what is happening on Manus Island. Yes, this is back in the Fast Five because it is still going on. There's hundreds of men who are still refusing to leave the Manus Island detention centre that the government closed last Tuesday. So there's in between 500 and 600 men still in the centre. They've been offered accommodation at another facility, a couple of other facilities actually, on the island. But they say they won't leave until they can be resettled in a third country because they're worried about their safety if they remain on Manus Island. There's been a lot of back and forth as well about these new accommodation facilities are actually ready or not. So Immigration Minister Peter Dutton says that they are. But um, Green Senator Nick McKim, who has been on the island, as well as representatives from the UN, say that one of the facilities actually isn't ready yet. But either way, the men do not want to leave the Manus Island Centre. Uh, it's been closed since last Tuesday. That means that services like food and water and electricity have all been cut off. Uh, Papua New Guinea court early this week rejected an application to reinstate food and water to the men. And they've now been warned that they have two days to leave or that force may be used to relocate them. A notice put up by the PNG Immigration Authority says, and I quote, you cannot continue to remain here in this condition. It is very bad for your health and well-being if you continue to refuse to move to your new accommodation where there is food, water and other services. You are given two days to move and if necessary, force may be used to relocate those who refuse to move voluntarily for your own sake. It also says that fences around the centre are being demolished and that the security of those who remain cannot be guaranteed. And anyone found in the immediate area outside of the detention centre could be arrested for trespassing on a PNG Defence Force property. So this morning in the Daily Telegraph, there was uh, pictures of, of some footage that was taken by GetUp of the conditions inside the camp. And it has been very difficult to get inside the camp for journalists and activists who are on Manus at the moment. These pictures show things like men sleeping on tables outside to escape the heat, which can reach 40 degrees Celsius, shows toilets and urinals that are filthy and clogged because there's no running water anymore. There's green slime covering the floor of the shower recess and mould on the walls. So, you know, the scenes in the camp are really ugly. They're living in really squalid conditions. And it does seem like this standoff may end with them being, you know, forcibly removed by the PNG military. And on Friday as well, the UN Human Rights Committee released a periodical report of Australia's human rights record. And once again, our refugee situation was singled out for criticism. The committee called on Australia to close offshore detention centres and ensure the people in them are not sent back to their country of origin and have a safe place to resettle. So that's still happening on Manus. That's going to blow up, I think, in the next few days. Alice, what's number three? Number three is racism at our pubs, Lane. Uh, Mm. Labor Senator Sam Dastyari was called a terrorist and a monkey by men from the far-right fringe group Patriot Blue uh, in a Melbourne pub on Wednesday night. Now, Patriot Blue are an offshoot of the United Patriots Front. Recently, they protested against local councils uh, calling to change the date. They, they, you might remember we spoke to, I spoke to Sam Ratnam, who's the new leader of the Greens in Victoria. She, uh, her council, and I talked to her about how that that day her council had been stormed by protesters and, and it was these people. Um, so Sam Dastari was at the Victorian University Bar um, with fellow Labor politician Tim Watts to spruik his book when he was approached by um, the men who began racially abusing him. He was ordering a drink. Um, uh, here's some of what happened. You go back to Iran, you terrorists. Uh, it's, it's completely different. Look at mate. What do you go back to Iran? So basically the men told Dastiari to go back to Iran, which is where he was born, and asked him whether his wine was halal certified. Um, uh, Sam Dastiari, big fan of the Sauvignon Blanc, the Savvy B, mm-hmm. as he likes to call it. Um, when the men followed Dastiari to his table, they kept asking him what race Islam was. And then uh, Tim Watts, in a zinger that the internet just adores, uh, said, what race is dickhead? <laughs> now, Tim Watts, uh, member for Gellibrand, Victoria, um, often considered to be the most woke and social media savvy politician in Parliament House. So uh, if you're on Twitter, I would give him a uh, follow. Here's what Senator Dastiari said on Sky News afterwards. Uh, I get followed wherever I go. Um, 
by white nationalists, by white power groups. Normally it's a group called the United Patriots Front. Uh, last night some group called Patriots Blue, which frankly I'd never actually even heard of before. Um, I was doing an event at a university with Tim Watts, uh, the local MP for there. And look, you know, uh, we got harassed. Uh, they, they were kind of trying to intimidate us stand over us. Uh, but I'll be honest again, this is the, the modern face of where politics in this country has really, really come to. And it's something that a lot of us have to put up with uh, a lot of times. What's unbelievable here is that uh, these, you know, racists or whatever you want to call them, white nationalists, uh, actually posted it themselves kind of bragging about, you know, showing up and, and abusing people in bars. And uh, I've got to say, it's a, uh, you know, I cop a lot of it, obviously, because of my, um, um, you know, being a non-practicing Muslim, but having Muslim heritage, I think kind of draws a lot of their ire, but uh, but it is what it is, Kieran, and it's the modern face of, of where politics is heading. Senator Dastyari has kind of shrugged the whole thing off, but he, he made an interesting point. He said that um, abuse like this, and it's happening on both sides, he, he pointed to the headbutting of Tony Abbott as well. He said, but he said generally things like this are becoming more common because of a rise in nationalism and extremism, and he kind of pointed to Pauline Hanson and what One Nation are doing, and said that, you know, potentially could lead to a similar situation of of Charlottesville in the, in the United States. Now, Sky News tracked down the guy, the Patriot Blues guy, um, who filmed the video, um, and he refused to apologise, and he said that he wasn't racist. Are you a racist? No, I'm not a racist. I'm not a racist. Look, I believe if you call someone a monkey, they're not um, of dark skin. That's usually the the, uh, the way people see it as racism. I don't believe it's a it's a racial racial um, attack. And then Pauline Hanson said that she hadn't seen the video, but said that uh, Dastyari was abusing the publicity to sell his book. It's got nothing to do about him being a Muslim, and he's a, he's admitted he's a non-practicing Muslim. So he's played up this whole thing. You know, people in Australia will make up their own mind about, um, uh, I call him Mr Bean because that's exactly what he looks like, a little Mr Bean. But anyway, as you can understand, I've got absolutely no time for him whatsoever. I think he's a smart-ass. He shows it on the floor of Parliament. He's got no respect for the people and he plays up his position. He has no respect for the position of being a Member of Parliament and I'm very strong about this. So some pretty disgusting comments there by Pauline Hanson. Both uh, Bill Shorten and the Prime Minister said that, you know, it was unacceptable racism and it's pretty much been condemned by everyone. Um, but, you know, it's still a... It's still a pretty troubling thing given that um, Sam Dastyari said that this kind of stuff happens to him all the time. Number four, Alice, is Queensland. We're in week two of the Queensland election campaign. And as we mentioned before, Pauline Hanson has a bus. It's called the Battler Bus. And like a lot of battlers out there, broke down for a few hours earlier this week. Um, but before... Are, are the- you saying battle? I think that we say battler differently because I would uh, soften the L and say ba- emphasise the bat battler but you appear to say battler bat battler You're fancy the battler the battler bus now i can't say it normally <laughs> anyway <laughs> <Keep going. laughs> this week the battler bus <laughs> has been to yapoon gladstone mackay and rockhampton and a galaxy poll this week found the party's vote has risen from 15% to 18% in the past three months, while support for the Liberal National Party has fallen to 32%. The Labor vote was unmoved at 35%. A federal Labor MP from Queensland, Murray Watt, said One Nation is a very real presence in this campaign. I completely believe that. If they're getting 18% statewide, that means they're getting up to or over 30% in some areas. We're two weeks out for Election Day, but there's a very real prospect of them winning many seats. It's no exaggeration to say they will win seats and they stand a very real chance of being part of the next government in Queensland. So One Nation is fielding Mm. 61 candidates in the election. It's a huge number of candidates. And Hanson won't put a number on how many she thinks will be successful, but she does believe the result will eclipse One Nation's previous high watermark in 1998 when it won 11 seats and nearly 23% of the vote. One Nation, they're campaigning on battlers on a combination of things like power prices, cost of living and jobs. The centrepiece of the One Nation campaign so far has been promising a new coal-fired power station for northern Queensland. The party's also concerned about youth unemployment, the closure of TAFEs and foreign ownership. And a fun fact for you, Alice, Queensland is also the only state where more people live outside of the capital city, Brisbane. Now, this is a factor that works in One Nation's favour. 
the current Premier, Anastasia Palaszczuk, has said she would not do a deal with One Nation, even if it meant losing government. Mm. Liberal National Opposition Leader Tim Nichols has also promised that he would not form a coalition with One Nation or offer ministry positions, but he has left the door open to preferencing the party on a seat-by-seat basis. So, Queensland election, it's all happening up north. Alice, what's number five? Yeah, huge call by Tim Nichols to um, hold a press conference at Movie World this week and voluntarily go on a roller coaster and get filmed on a roller coaster. And then he uh, held a press conference in front of a mural of evil cartoon characters. I mean, that is some strong internet content there from Tim Nichols. I'm very impressed. Okay, number five is, I mentioned it at the start of the Fast Five, but the Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull is in Vietnam for APEC, the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation, um, to make some trade deals. Turnbull is trying to encourage other countries to embrace open, transparent trade markets and resist the rising populist tide of protectionism, um, which will be interesting considering that US President Donald Trump is there and Trump is anti-trade. The TPP will be discussed. Is it going to survive now the US has pulled out of it? Well, there are 11 countries currently negotiating, but it's pretty slow going. The new New Zealand government don't like parts of it, but um, Australia and Japan are kind of doing doing a lot of the heavy lifting and pushing it along at the moment. Um, But also uh, the PM, while he's uh, at APEC, is finalising a trade deal with Peru, which is pretty interesting. So the agreement will eliminate 99% of tariffs faced by exporters into Peru with Australian sugar, beef, Dairy producers expected to be the beneficiaries of it. So it'll allow 30,000 tonnes of sugar to be exported duty-free, and that amount will double in five years and then triple in 18 years. Beef farmers will have tariffs-free access within five years, um, with Peru forecast to triple its beef consumption by 2020. Tariffs on a range of Australian produce will be scrapped, and dairy and rice farmers will be given greater access to Peru as well. And... Peruvian students will be able to attend Australian universities and have their degrees recognised back at home. So that's good news for the Peruvian students. And now it is time for Lane's favourite segment. The controversial same-sex marriage postal vote. This plebiscite on same-sex marriage. Postal vote. Postal plebiscite. The postal plebiscite or survey or whatever it is on same-sex marriage. Alice, the postal survey campaign is over. It's done. It's finished. How do you feel? Ready for the result. (laughs) Ready for the result? Mm. At 4.30pm on Tuesday, Australian Bureau of Statistics officers around the country closed to signal the end of the postal survey. Now, because of daylight saving, Australia has five different time zones at the moment. So it was five different 4.30s across the country. I went to the Sydney ABS office for the final hour of the survey and tried to find some of the extremely late voters wandering around the Sydney CBD. And Alice, I actually found a fair few dropping in their surveys in literally the, the last possible hour that you could do it. I had a chat with Claire Maloney, who I am pretty sure was the last voter in New South Wales. So here she is. We think that you're the last yes voter in Sydney. How do you feel about that? Um, Proud and disappointed at the same time. Um, Just very excited that I got here with eight minutes to spare. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I was not ever not going to put in my yes vote. Uh, Despite all of the messaging and everyone telling me to do it now, do it ASAP. Clearly, I'm a slow learner. So how did we how did we get to this moment? Uh, you know, clearly amazing management of time and yeah. priorities. Yeah. Just kept on thinking, oh, I'll post it tomorrow, I'll post it tomorrow, and then the penny dropped this morning that yeah. I actually hadn't yet. And okay. it's a cause that's hugely important to me and close to me and so many of my friends. So yeah. there's no way I wasn't going to bust down here and drop it in. And can you just um, describe the dropping in process for me? It's pretty funny. So I ran in heels, which was, you know, impressive. And you've got to basically like navigate your way to the lift, get into the lift, go upstairs. And then there was a lovely security guard up there taking all of the votes and he was even able to tape my envelope up for me because I hadn't sealed it. Okay. Which was very kind. Lovely. Yeah, yeah. They were they were super lovely up there. He said about a hundred people had dropped in today. Okay. Yeah. Um and can I ask what is your main reasons for voting yes? It's a matter of equal rights. I think 
if people aren't realising this now, they will soon start looking at this issue like any other major defining human rights issue of our time mm-hmm. globally. Yep. And Australia has to take, you know, a leadership position on this. Like, yep. that's why it's so important. So... It's done and dusted. Campaigns are no longer campaigning. The relentless ads and flyers have stopped. But we're all waiting, like you are, Alice, for the result on Wednesday. It's going to be handed down at 10am Australian Eastern Daylight Time in Belconnen in Canberra. Alice, do you have any thoughts on Belconnen? <laughs> Belconnen. Um, yeah, it's where the Department of Immigration offices are, actually. Um, hmm, it's, okay. about, it's about 20 minutes from, uh, quotation marks, the city. Uh, area of Canberra. Um, it's, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know what? I've been in the Bunnings there. Pretty good sausage sanger. There you go. Bell Commons. Excellent. Right. It's all right. Great review. Great, great <laughs> review. And so, Alice, I have another question for you. You will actually be there in Belconnen to hear the announcement live. I'll be watching it from Sydney mm. at the Yes Campaign Results event. We'll have someone on the No event as well. Do you have a prediction? I predict that uh, mathematicians around the country uh, will uh, mourn uh, the 15th of November as the day that um, statistics died. <laughs> That's my prediction. The day statistics died. <laughs> okay. That is incredible. <laughs> I, don't have, um, I don't have a results prediction, but only because, like, yeah. mm. we've never done anything like this before. The Yes Camp seem very confident that they're going to win. I just have no idea what this bizarro process is going to turn out. And next week, we will, of course, have more on the Postal Survey because we'll know the result on Wednesday. Well, the Prime Minister might be in Vietnam at the moment, but the citizenship mess refuses to quiet down. And who knows? I mean, check your watch. Another jewel might come forward before this podcast is over. Here to talk about his idea for an independent audit and the two new senators being sworn in on Monday to replace Scott Ludlam and Larissa Waters is Greens leader Richard D. Natale. Senator, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Pleasure. Now, it looks like Parliament might be uh, coming back for an extra week before Christmas. So we've got a Senate sitting week next week, two more weeks on the schedule, but potentially a third week in December uh, to deal with the ongoing citizenship saga. Are you happy to, to come back to get this all sorted with before the end of the year? Oh, well, this thing needs to be sorted out and it needs to be sorted out quickly. Um, it should have been sorted out months ago and the government and the Labor opposition should have supported the Greens' a proposal for an audit when we put it to the Senate months ago. They haven't done it. They've let this issue drag on and on. People are looking at the Parliament and it looks a bit like a laughingstock at the moment. It's a circus. And uh, I'm not sure that we need to wait that long. I think we could have it resolved much more quickly than that. Uh, we should be able to... If you're a, if you're an MP right now and mm. you haven't got details about where your parents were born and where you were born, then you don't deserve to be in the Parliament. That information people should have at their fingertips. They should be able to provide it very quickly. Uh, and we should be able to conduct an audit and have it done within uh, several weeks and certainly not have to um, go to the expense of bringing the Parliament back. Um, but we will do what we can to have this resolved and resolved as quickly as possible. So we'll look at the government's proposal and make a judgment about what we do with it mm. when we see it. Or would you prefer uh, Senator Cory Bernardi's idea that we prorogue Parliament so we, we cancel Parliament until until next year? Well, Senator Bernardi's um, obviously making mischief because we know that he's a strong opponent of marriage equality. And I think Senator Bernardi's statement about uh, proroguing Parliament or effectively saying Parliament can't sit is more about trying to stop legislation on marriage equality than it is about resolving the um, citizenship crisis, which is now a full-blown constitutional crisis because the government doesn't know if it's got the numbers to govern. Mm. But what um, what we should do is we should go back on the Monday. We should see um, – we know the crossbench are going to support a Greens motion for a comprehensive audit to be done quickly. Mm-hmm. If Labor and Liberal did it, we wouldn't need to come back. We'd be able to have the issue resolved and resolved very, very quickly. So you're calling for an audit that would replace the non-audit that the Prime Minister has proposed? Absolutely. I mean, what the Prime Minister is saying is, oh, look, we want you to come forward and we want you to volunteer and provide some information and that's it. Um, first thing is we can't trust them to come forward and provide information. We know that when Senator Parry came forward to members of his own team to in senior ministers of the cabinet no less they um they told him to shut up and keep his head down mm. well uh, this is the issue isn't it the problem with the the proposal at the moment is that politicians are just required to say what's 
within the best of their knowledge. And, and if it turns out that they do provide a false statement, uh, you know, if John Alexander was asked two weeks ago, he would have said, I believe that I'm only an Australian citizen. He now is saying that he won't release any documents until this 21-day process has started. But there, there seems to be no punishment if people fail to do their, do their due diligence and, and look up their family history. Well, firstly, there's no um, accountability. We, we don't know if somebody's coming forward and volunteering all the information they have. The second problem with the proposal is that we um, there's no uh, assessment of the documentation that's done by an independent third party. So there'll be um, documentation or, or um, dates put forward on the register, and then there'll be claim and counterclaim about whether that person's eligible to sit. And there's no assessment process to say, yeah, look, we think this is a real problem and this person should be referred to the High Court. And then, of course, if somebody does make a false or misleading um, uh, um, entry on their register, we don't have uh, we don't have any way of um, punishing that. There's no there's there's really no um, enforcement here because at the moment, if you don't um, fill your register of interests properly, nothing happens. So the process is entirely flawed, and again, it's just a prime minister trying to delay um, the inevitable. And I think we are on track to have this issue resolved. It will take months. Mm-hmm. I don't think it has any uh, there's any other way um, to resolve this other than for a number of people for whom there are question marks being referred to the High Court. We should have a systematic audit process for doing that. If we don't, it's just going to be death by a thousand cuts. Do you think the government are running a protection racket for for some of the people in the lower house? Because I know that you you uh, tweeted out some statistics uh, the other day about uh, how how you you think there are a few more dual citizens hidden away in the lower house than than what are making out to be. Well, we got an astrophysicist to do the numbers for us, and they uh, they said, look, given that there are five people ineligible out of 76 in the Senate, the odds of there being more than one person that we in the lower house, which is the current state of play, are 99.96% based on mm. the numbers in the Senate. So we know there were going to be more people in the lower house. Of course, the government's sitting on them, and it's this isn't um, a conspiracy theory. We know it for a fact because when Senator Perry came forward, he was told not to... Uh, disclose his circumstances until the High Court decision. And so we know that. I mean, the the John Alexander um, announcement was just remarkable when you consider that it came within um, minutes of the government announcing their proposal. It makes you realise that Mm. what they have um, is ultimately people who are ineligible and they're doing everything they can to try and prevent that from being disclosed and from going to an early election. And that's a prime minister who's just shown himself to be incapable of, of demonstrating integrity when it's absolutely necessary. Are you going to be referring uh, potential cases as they come up to the High Court? Will the Greens what we'd be... like, look, we'd like to see the um, a comprehensive audit so that you're not doing this in a piecemeal way, yep. one by one by one. We want to see everybody assist and a, and a referral made on block so that everybody's refer whether for whom there are question marks is referred at the same time, and you just put the issue to bed. But at the moment, with this proposal of potentially having one people referred one by one, this thing will keep dragging on mm. and on and on. And no wonder people think the parliament's a laughingstock. Well, that's the point, right? It's it's all a trust issue. And at what point are we going to be able to say, well, we trust that everyone who is a dual citizen has come forward and, and you know, the Australian people can start to trust their MPs again? The only way to do that now is to have everybody subject documentation for an independent audit. That's mm. the only way it'll happen Be- because we've seen a huge erosion of trust. Look, when we when we realised we two of our own people who got caught up in this, um, they made a mistake. It was a stuff up. Uh, our vetting processes didn't pick it up, and we had two good people with Scott uh, Ludlam and Larissa Waters basically copying it on the chin and resigning and doing the right thing. They didn't seek to blame their mum. They didn't seek to make excuses they realized that they'd stuffed up they took responsibility and they resigned you just need to look at what's happened since then i mean we've seen uh, matt canavan who firstly blamed his mum then it wasn't his fault it was someone else's fault uh he stood aside as a minister when barnaby joyce got pinged the prime minister adopted a completely different standard and said well no you can keep acting as a minister there's a huge cloud now over decisions that he made while he was a minister so you've seen a totally different standard being adopted then of course we had the Prime Minister say he was absolutely um, confident that the High Court would rule in their favour, that they had good advice on that, and, of course, they lost 7-0 on that, on that account. 
and then uh, they were confident they had no more people come f- that, that were dual citizens. And then we hear the president of the Senate, no less, mm. who comes forward to his own colleagues and uh, is told to shut up. No, these, of course people don't trust this mob and they've got no reason to trust them. And I know that um, people see this and, and they see the parliament as a, a bit of a circus at the moment. They want it put to bed. Uh, and they, they understand that the only way to do that is now to have a full comprehensive independent audit. Can, uh, can people trust the Greens? How have you changed your vetting process since you've lost your two senators? Well, we've actually got um, in each state a review that's been underway to make sure that we do this and do this properly. Um, we've been caught out um, and we, through our um, national decision-making body, have set up a process to make sure that our vetting processes improve and that we, uh, that we have... Um, clear questions being asked where appropriate documentation is provided where it's necessary and that we don't find ourselves in this position again. Um, I just wanted to ask you, people keep bringing up multiculturalism, saying that uh, this is a sign that, uh, you know, multicultural Australia uh, doesn't compute with current politics. But I wanted to see what you thought. Do you think it's an issue about multiculturalism or really is it about people failing to follow the rules that are clearly stated? Well, I actually, I actually think both things are true. So I think that I don't like it, but this part of Section 44, I think it, um, it is an anachronism. It belongs, you know, to a bygone era. And when you consider one in two people are either born here or have a parent born overseas, it does exclude a lot of people. And there are a lot of people who don't want to give up their dual citizenship. They might work overseas at various times. Uh, they might um, uh, like the idea of having a European passport to give them opportunities to work in those environments, and they don't want to have to um, give that up to stand for Parliament and often to stand in seats that where they, they have very little prospect of being elected. So I do think it's something we should change, but, and this is where the but, it's a very important but, it's in our constitution. This isn't mm. something that the Parliament can change. It's actually in our founding document. And if you really, if you somebody who respects democracy, then you have to have respect for our constitution, the founding document. Uh, and it is, it's the, the, the foundation on which our democracy is built. So while we don't support it, we understand that it is actually in our constitution and as people who respect democracy, our duty is to uphold it. And yet you've got you know, the Liberal Party who are prepared to trash the constitution, that important um, document on which on which our democracy is built so uh i would like to see the law changed and the only way we can do it is through a referendum uh, but while it exists our duty is to try and uphold the constitution mm. you know if people are going to have faith in a democracy then they have to see people who are acting within our democracy acting with some integrity and that's just not happening at the moment now you've got two new senators uh starting soon uh are you are you sure that andrew bartlett and, and john still john aren't dual citizens have they been have they been double checked yes in fact that's uh, a process that i think has uh the the party has gone through i know there are questions around uh, andrew bartlett having, having what's called an office of profit under the crown um, because he worked at a university for a period of time. But we've had very clear legal advice on that front that that doesn't constitute a breach of that section of the Constitution. So we're really looking forward to welcoming Andrew Bartlett, former leader of the Democrats, and Jordan Steeljohn, a young man with a disability. Both will make a huge contribution when they get there. I wanted to ask you about Andrew Bartlett. Uh, of course, he was the, the former leader of, of the Democrats. He There was a controversial incident with him in the Senate where he was, uh, after a, allegedly a, a wine-fueled altercation on the Senate floor, he was asked to step down as leader. Allegedly, he... Uh, he bruised the arm of, of a Labor, a Liberal, sorry, Senator. Have you spoken to him about this incident? I haven't. I mean, it was a long time ago, and I know that he apologised for the incident. Mm. Um, and I, you know, I know that it was a mistake. It was a bad mistake and one that he shouldn't have made. But um, he acknowledges that um, he made an error. I know that he um, has also acknowledged publicly that he's. Uh, he was at the time struggling with some mental health issues, which he's dealt with, uh, and I think that um, he com- comes back to the parliament refreshed after a long break and with a wealth of experience and knowledge, and I'm, I'm hoping he's going to make a great contribution. How, how do you think you as the, the Greens leader are, are going to go with a, a former Democrat leader uh, underneath you? Well, very well, I think. I mean, really welcome the 
experience that he brings to the role. And he's not the only former leader in the party. Of course, Nick McKim is a mm. former leader of the Tasmanian Greens. So mm-hmm. um, having Nick in the uh, party room has been really terrific. You know, it's, it is a, a good thing to have people with experience who have been in these positions before. They bring a, a, a perspective that's important. And I think we've got a really good mix of talent in the party room now. We've got Jordan Steele, John, the youngest ever senator to be elected to the parliament. Uh, we have people from a range of different backgrounds. Um, no, I'm very excited about uh, what both of them will bring. Now, speaking of Nick McKim, Nick McKim has been on Manus Island where uh, the you know we've been talking about kind of issues of, of citizenship and constitutional crises, but but really there there is quite a serious issue happening over uh, on Manus where there there are hundreds of men who refuse to leave the closed detention centre. The PNG court has rejected their application to get access to to, to food and water. Uh, what I mean, do you think that that this issue is being lost with all of the kind of clamour about whether or not John Alexander is a Brit? Well, I have to say that's one of the um, one of the reasons that we have to just resolve this dual citizenship stuff because it's uh, it's such a distraction from really important issues. And there's nothing more important than how we treat our fellow human beings. And uh, what's going on on Manus Island is a tragedy. It's a humanitarian crisis. We've got innocent people who have been locked up for four years, who have been tortured. Uh, that's the language of Amnesty International, not mine, who have been tortured. Uh, people have been denied urgent medical treatment. People have been abused in detention. Uh, we've seen people assaulted. Uh, we've seen deaths occur on the island. And now we have 600 people who, um, the great majority of who are genuine refugees, they've been assessed as genuine refugees, um, and are now uh, being forced to um, evacuate the detention centre to be um, in, a, in an environment where there's so many members of that community who simply don't want them there. And that's um, very, very difficult where you have um, pa- uh, people within the um, Manus Island community who have in the past, um, and it is not all of the locals, it has to be stressed, but some mm. who have assaulted uh asylum seekers and we as i said we've seen the death of uh, an asylum seeker not too long ago and so we have that situation where a number of innocent people who've done nothing other than to flee torture and persecution are now um fearing for their life uh, on menace and fearing for their safety australia has a responsibility to bring them here we should do that urgently they'll make a great contribution when they come here we know that's the history of australia where we've given refuge to people from right around the world, that they are people who can't wait to contribute and make Australia a better place. And you're speaking as though you, you know that they are going to they are going to come here. But it, the standoff with the between the men and, and the government at the moment, it doesn't look like uh, Peter Dutton is going to blink. Well, I'm speaking as somebody who just wants the government to show a bit of decency and a bit of humanity. Really, um, I was going to say, do I'm, you know something I don't know? Have they have no, they made a deal? No, I, no but what I'm saying. Uh, is this is what should happen. This is what should happen. Uh, We've got, as I said, 600 people who should be brought here, who should be given the medical care they need, the support they need, and we know they'd make a huge contribution to this country. Uh, Now, I'm not optimistic about the chances of that happening uh, under the government, but who knows? We may be going to an election sooner rather than later, Mm. given current situation, and that might offer a glimmer of hope for the people on Manus Island. Now, we've had the uh, voting in the... Po- oh, I mean, you can't call it voting because it's not an election, is it? Uh, we've had uh, we've had the... Non-compulsory the, survey. The non-compulsory survey uh, polling close this week. Uh, we'll have a result uh, next Wednesday. Uh, what are your early predictions, uh, Senator? I, I'm very, very hopeful we'll get a strong, positive result. Uh, I'm very hopeful that um, if we get that, we will end up with marriage equality by the end of this year. Um, unless Malcolm Turnbull stuffs it up. I mean, I wouldn't put anything beyond the Prime Minister at the moment. He'll obviously be getting a lot of pressure from the far right of his party. Um, The question is whether he's going to go to water on this like he has on so many other issues. You'd like to think that they've gone through this awful process where they've basically outsourced the decision-making to the community and, and unleashed this really awful debate. Well, if the answer comes back and it's a resounding yes, which I think... Is, much, is likely to be the case, then the PM just needs to move. Mm. We need to 
have a bill introduced in Parliament and we have to have it sorted by the end of the year. And it might be the one decent thing that we can go away to the Christmas break and think, well, at least we've achieved something um, over an awful year of um, political upheaval. What, what do you think is more important, getting the legislation through by the end of the year or uh, would, would you rather, I guess, uh, see the legislation passed with maybe some some things in there that, that Malcolm Turnbull uh, uses to capitulate to the right about about freedoms of, of business owners? Or would you rather take a bit longer and, and make sure that it's a legislation that, uh, you know, doesn't change the kind of the, the rules of service in Australia? Alice, we're not going to do anything that would support uh, discrimination, entrenching discrimination in uh, the Marriage Equality Act. We just won't. If this is a Trojan horse for the right of his party to further entrench uh, discriminations against people, discrimination against people, then we're just not going to accept that. So uh, my strong message to Malcolm Turnbull is make sure that whatever legislation you push through the parliament is one that achieves marriage equality but doesn't trade away important protections against discrimination between people because if this is a Trojan horse to further entrenched discrimination, then the Greens won't have a bar of it. I love your optimism, thinking that the Prime Minister listens to this little humble podcast, Senator. (laughs) (laughs) I suspect he's got got an army of people that listen to uh, all sorts of podcasts, and hopefully this will be one of them, Alice. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks for your support. I really appreciate it. Pleasure. All right, thanks, Richard. I'll uh, I'll chat to you when you're in Canberra next week. Good on you. I like the woman. I like the woman. I like the woman. I like the woman. Fun fact, Lane. Andrew Bartlett was potentially Parliament's first goth politician. <laughs> what? In a in a Fairfax story I found from 2002, it said, <clears throat> "quote." Bartlett complains of newspapers reprinting a 2000 publicity shot of him in full goth regalia, heavy on the mascara, eyeshadow and lipstick and holding a freed chicken, but says he still receives strong public support for the message. I'm sure it was not just because they liked the makeup I was wearing. They wanted to see chickens out of the cage. So. Oh, my God. There you go. A goth. There you go, indeed. A goth. Alice. Moving on, we haven't done Binge Juice in so long, and I do feel like our devoted listeners will probably blame me for this, but really it's because we just keep recording episodes that are way too long because we talk to each other too much and run out of time. But this week, we thought we should try our best to squeeze in some Binge Juice. So what is yours? My Binge Juice is kind of from left field this week, but it was just something that I'd never really heard uh, talked about before and I thought was really fascinating. Um, The Prime Minister is being urged to intervene and stop a company that plans to build wind farms on a World War One battlefield in France. There were two battles at Boulecourt 100 years ago that cost Australia at least 10,000 casualties. And the bodies of many of the men that died there were never recovered. And so they remained there, buried um, underneath uh, the former battlefield. Um, others were found and buried on the battlefield as well, um, but their names remain unknown. Um, now, there's fears that if France approves this wind farm, seven towers will be built on the battlefield. And to build them, they'd have to dig the foundations and tunnels and do a lot of earthwork so they could potentially disrupt some of the of the graves. Um, a number of high-profile Aussies have been speaking out on this, including former Queensland Liberal Premier Campbell Newman. And Campbell Newman said this week that he wants Malcolm Turnbull just to call up um, Emmanuel Macron and tell him that this can't happen. Uh, a veteran affairs minister, Dantin, so the person that's kind of in, in charge of this stuff, um, he said that he would be raising the issue with his counterpart in France. He said, this wind farm has been on again, off again, so I'll be trying to get an understanding. But I can say that the French take incredibly seriously ensuring what took place 100 years ago is properly respected. Um, so there you go. That's a that's a weird little thing that's happening in the land of politics at the moment. In my bin juice, or rather in my bin that I'm pulling out, or whatever the analogy is, uh, it's a story from earlier in the week. We've spoken before on the podcast about how the government has rejected the proposal for an Indigenous voice to parliament in the Uluru Statement from the Heart. There has obviously been a lot of pushback against this decision from Indigenous Australians who, who feel very let down, very like, you know, the government has asked for our opinions and then 
decided to say, nope, that's not going to work. And so earlier this week, a group of almost 1,000 non-Indigenous Australians and organisations put their name to a statement calling on the government to reverse the decision and implement the views of the Uluru Statement. So it was led by former Australian of the Year Fiona Stanley and basically says, we are concerned about the negative response from the Australian government to the Uluru Statement from the heart. Um, Reading a bit from the statement that they put out, it says, many first Nations peoples that we know and respect are again experiencing a governmental rejection of their views. First Nations voices are the only ones who can truly explain and ameliorate the historical intergenerational traumas, the marginalisation, the hurts and all of their consequences. So it's a big message to the government. It calls on the government to give First Nations peoples a say in their matters, to reverse this decision, to reject the Uluru Statement from the heart. And it comes also as after the government rejected that, a lot of the reasons given for their rejection was that they didn't think this had a, you know, a chance in hell of getting up at a referendum of the Australian people. Since then, a bit of polling has come out. This polling has indicated, certainly, uh, while not being conclusive, but it has suggested that the proposal would have much more of a chance than the government suggested it it would. So, you know, I think we're going to keep seeing some efforts to overturn this rejection of the Indigenous voice to Parliament by the government. Whether it actually leads to anything is another question. But, yeah, that is an important thing that happened this week. And that is all for Binjuice, Alice, and for the podcast this week. Yep, that's right. I want to say a big thank you to our producer, Nicholas Ray, Josh Taylor, Nicola Harvey, Richard James, Peter Holmes, and the whole pod team. A big thank you to Rode Microphones for supporting the podcast. You can go to buzzfeed.com slash is it on or subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcasting application. Um, and you can leave us a rating and review if you are so inclined. We'll be back next week with another episode where we will be covering the results of the same-sex marriage survey. I am at Workman Alice on Twitter. She's at Lane Sainty. Um, and Alice, it's that time again of every week where I ask you, is it on? Well, according to Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, he is just a good man in a crisis. Here is a little altercation that the PM had with uh, Carl Stefanovic on the Today Show this week. You are waffling. That's not... I, 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 well, you, well, Carl, you've got a job. Uh, if you're looking for a job and you need a job and you've got one because of the strong economic leadership we've provided, you may think it's waffling, but if you've been unemployed and you're getting a chance to get ahead, you think that's pretty... I would, you would say you are being very patronising. OK, this is, this is what I want. This is what I want. This is, is the real waffle. you. This is the real you. This is what we want. No, no, well, this is... And, it's, and, my, and Carl, is it the real you to patronise people who are out of work and are getting a chance I'm to not, get ahead? I'm not patronising. I, I don't think it is. I think you're a fair dinkum Aussie. I think you've got compassion. And I think you know that my job is to ensure that more Australians have the chance to get ahead and realise their dreams... And that's what I'm doing. Okay, this so is what I'm we want to see. I'm not going to be distracted. This is what we want to see. Frenzy. I'm not the, distracted the by the frenzy. I'm resolving the, the, resolving the problems. Okay. Resolving the problems and delivering. Does he protest too much? Is my question. Um, <laughs> I feel like the PM is kind of going through death by a thousand paper cuts at the moment. And there's been some really interesting suggestions this week about whether or not the PM's gone to the Governor General um, and said, "Mate, can you not kick us out of office? This isn't a constitutional crisis. We are okay." But Every day when we get another jewel, it's hard to believe that that is true. So I would say that uh, it is slightly on, I reckon, Lane. I reckon it's slightly on. Slightly on. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, Okay. The level of on is... The water is tepid. Okay. All right. And you know what they say about um, a, a lobster in a slowly boiling pot? Don't eat it. You'll get food poisoning. I think I've mangled the metaphor there. So let, let's let's let everyone go. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.